I know the time. I'll be short. It's a short chapter. It's not nearly as, any, as eventful of a chapter as chapter 13. I hate even to say that about a chapter in the Word of God, but chapter 13 is one of the great chapters of the New Testament Amen. because the gospel came to us Gentiles. There was that moment in Antioch of Pisidia when the Apostle Paul, seeing the rejection of the gospel by the Jews, said, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Brethren, that is a savour of death unto death. Amen. As I read to you this morning from 2 Corinthians 2, he said, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Amen. And the Gentiles glorified the word of the Lord. Amen. Right. Acts chapter 13. And we read in verse 48, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Amen. Acts thirteen forty-eight. We are in a small minority because we're Bible believers. Very few churches teach Acts thirteen forty-eight, which tells us that someone that believes the gospel was ordained to eternal life prior to that belief. Amen. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And so in Acts chapter 13, we have that great sermon preached by Paul in Antioch of Pisidia, Many Gentiles converted, and then he leaves at, in the last two verses of that chapter and goes to Iconium. And so we come to Acts chapter 14. And it came to pass in Iconium that they both went together into the synagogue of the Jews. Now we shouldn't be surprised with that, should we? Nope. When the Apostle Paul and Barnabas come to a new city... They go to where people already fear God and are looking to hear the truth. And you're going to see this over and over again. They go to the synagogue. In chapter 13, we saw it in verse 5, that when they were in Salamis, they went into the synagogue. And when they went to Antioch, they went into the synagogue. And so we have it again here in 14.1. And so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. What would Paul preach in a place like that? That there's great financial prosperity awaiting those that will trust in God? Nope. I have a book on the back table that I've put there that I received in the mail this week. It's a many-paged book that I received free from Tulsa, Oklahoma, that if you'll simply join their faith promise program, you too can be rich. Now, Paul didn't preach any message like that. Right. Paul preached in verses 16 through 41 of Acts chapter 13, the history of Israel, the promise of a Messiah that Jesus was that Messiah, right. and that the resurrection of the dead of Christ was a true fact and was indeed a fulfillment of Bible promises. It was Amen. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. And Gentiles heard that message in what we now call Turkey and rejoiced. Amen. What in the world made that difference that they could be content, not only content, filled with exceeding great joy at hearing about Jesus Christ? Because God had commanded the light to shine in their hearts Amen. that we read about in Second Corinthians chapter 4. Amen. Don't you love the words, let there be light? Amen. And there was light. Amen. And when God commands the light to shine in our hearts, there was light. And we saw the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was with those Gentiles. And that's what was preached. So when we read in Acts 14 verse 1, And so spake, three little words, And so spake, that many were converted, we understand from Acts 13 what kind of a message Paul would preach. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles 
and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. When the gospel is preached, there's going to be a division created. There's an offense created by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is amazing how that two men, as noble and virtuous as Paul and Barnabas, could go into a city, not asking for money, preach a message of peace and hope, like they did in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there could be a great division made of men that hated that gospel. Right. Now, when I read the history of Mormonism and what they did in the states of Illinois and Missouri before they were driven to go to the state of Utah, I'm not surprised that a division was made. When, a, when those Mormons moved from New York State into Illinois and Missouri, and polygamy was rampant among them, the men of those two states weren't going to let them stay. They drove them out. That's because they were taking the women to fulfill their polygamous theology. And if you go read the history, Joseph Smith was murdered in a prison by a lynch mob in Nauvoo, Illinois. And so Brigham Young led the rest of that group of heretics out to Utah. Now, when I read that history, I can understand there being a division in a city when a group of people have come in who believe in polygamy. I've read about great divisions that have taken place when Catholicism comes into a city because of the infamy of the confessional booth and what priests can do to women's souls in the confessional and about the sale of indulgences in the Middle Ages in Europe. I can understand division. But when two noble men preach the gospel of peace and are taking advantage of no one and not asking for any money, but preaching a message from God... It still baffles me, except I know the Word of God, and it tells me why. Jesus Christ was made an offense so that only His people would ever believe the message. Remember over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when God in His wisdom looked down and saw that in wisdom the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. When He saw that the Greeks sought after wisdom and the Jews wanted a sign, He didn't give them what they wanted. He gave them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews. So the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against two good brothers. Satan is behind that. Satan does not want the gospel of Jesus Christ to have free course and be glorified like it was in the last few verses of chapter 13. So the apostles left. No, we read in verse 3, Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord. I love that fact. They spoke boldly in the name of the Lord, even though there was great opposition. They never modified the message. They never modified the message, regardless of the opponents, regardless of the opposition, or the division that was being made in the city. They preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and the Jews were the murderers, of the Son of God. Now that's not a polite way to introduce yourself to a bunch of Jews in Iconium. But that was the truth, and they preached it. Which gave testimony unto the word of His grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The Lord was with them. When the Lord's with you, who cares if Satan's with the opposition? And so Paul and Barnabas were able to do great signs and wonders so that their message, listen, to Gentiles in what we now call Turkey, who didn't who hardly knew anything of the the Gentiles of the city, of the grace of God or of the Word of God, they believed it. 
because the Lord was with them, granting mighty signs and wonders to be done to confirm his word. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. Where Jesus Christ is preached, there's divisions. And I hope that you remember that, never forget it, will expect it, and when it happens, you'll not be surprised, alarmed, or discouraged. Amen. Listen to this, just from the Gospel of John. John, I'll, I'll read three verses to you, just listen. John 7, verse 43. So there was a division among the people because of him. Acts chapter, John chapter 9 and verse 16. And there was a division among them. John 10, verse 19. There was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. Right. When Jesus Christ is preached, there's going to be a division. Amen. Jesus said that he came not to bring peace, but a sword. And a man's foes will be they of his own household. That's Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37. And we see it right here in Acts 14. The multitude of the city was divided. The message of Jesus Christ divides. If it doesn't divide, it's not the real message of Jesus Christ being preached. Because the truth of Jesus Christ will divide men. It's going to be the savour of death unto death in some, and the savour of life unto life in others. Right. It's going to offend some and bless others. There will be a great division. We never modify the message. Amen. Verse 5, And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derby, cities of Laconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. They never modified the message. But when the opposition got serious enough that their lives were at stake, they didn't take up arms. They fled. They fled and preached the gospel elsewhere. They went as far as they could. Then they used discretion and prudence, which the Bible teaches us. And they went elsewhere to preach. And we're going to run into this little city of Derby later because we're going to get one of Paul's helpers out of that city. But we'll wait till we come to that, and it's appointed time. So there we have in the first seven verses the history of Paul preaching the gospel at Iconium. Now we come to another city, and that's Lystra. Verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet. That means no power. Couldn't operate or control his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. Now I call that thoroughly crippled. He has no power. He's impotent. He's never walked. And it's been that way from his mother's womb. Right. The same man, the same, heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. Amen. And he leaped and walked. Amen. Now that's the Lord operating with his apostles. What if you had taken a ship to what we now call Turkey, a dark land of Gentiles, landed there and went into a city? What would you do to convince a bunch of ignorant men sitting in darkness about the truth of Jesus Christ? That is one difficult task. But when the Lord was with these men for 40 years, he allowed them to do mighty signs and wonders so that the people would have occasion to listen to what they said. Right. And this is why we have the gifts 
of the New Testament. Not only was he a thorough cripple in verse 8, he was thoroughly healed in verse 10 because he leaped and walked. He didn't go to therapy to learn how to walk. He didn't crawl. He didn't stagger, stumble, or shuffle. He leaped and walked. Praise the Lord. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Laconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, brethren, this is chapter 14. We ran into words like this in chapter 12, didn't we? In chapter 12, some words were uttered like this to Herod when he made a great oration, a speech. We'll see if the apostles handle such accolades differently than Herod did. Verse 13, here's how serious, verse 12, here's how serious these Laconians were. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius. Because he was the chief speaker, they named these two apostles after two of their gods. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands under the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Now here's the setup. They've performed a miracle, and these people are all of a sudden treating them as gods, wanting to do sacrifice to them, and calling them gods. Remember when Herod gave his his speech, the people of Tyre and Sidon that were there said, it is the voice of a God and not of man. And Herod just said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And took that blasphemy and God killed him. And he was eaten of worms, Acts chapter 12. Now what will the apostles do? You know, if one of these apostles had been a pope, they would have just said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Come up and kiss my toe and we'll all be happy. But they weren't like the popes. And you you say, why are you making fun of the Catholics? Because the Catholics don't read the Bible, and yet they claim to be a Christian religion. That's why. If they'd start following the Bible, we wouldn't make fun of them. But they have taken the Word of God and corrupted it by their human traditions to exalt a man that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says is the man of sin, who when he sits in the temple of God, he claims to be as God, above God, and wants to be worshipped like God. That's when he sits in the bishop's seat. It's called ex-cathedra in the Catholic's religion. When a bishop, when the Pope sits in his bishop's seat and makes a pronouncement, it is considered the voice of God. Amen. Here's what real apostles do when they are, when they are said to be gods come down in the likeness of men. Verse 14. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. But they sure made the effort, didn't they? And they did restrain the people. They went in and tore their clothes, and said, why are you doing anything like this? We're men just like you. We didn't create the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is. We've never sent fruitful seasons from heaven that would give you joy and gladness in your heart. That's the work of God. 
Why are you treating us like gods? God's commanded all men to turn from such vanities. Even when they're trying to persuade men, they're still calling their gods vanities. That's what the word vanities is in there for. He's referring to all their gods. That we're supposed to turn from these vanities to the God who created heaven and earth. Brethren, I can't tell you the importance of creation. Don't ever think that the doctrine of the creation of all things in six days by the word of God in Genesis chapter 1, Exodus chapter 20, Hebrews chapter 11, the first three verses, is not very important. It's very important. It's constantly appealed to in prayers. You want to go to Acts 4 and see it in prayer? In persuading men. In testimony of God in heaven, don't we sing a little chorus from Revelation 4.11? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The doctrine of creation is a foundational doctrine that we must always defend. As soon as, and look at our country. You know the news this past week. The the State Board of Education in the state of Kansas has undone what they did two years ago by allowing creation to be taught in their schools has undone it and gone back to evolution because they were ridiculed from every source around the globe for being idiots. We live in a nation that believes in a theory, a hallucination called evolution, and creation is so fundamental and basic to our gospel because the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of all creation as we love to sing. And Jesus Christ is said to have created the worlds. Amen. And so here are the apostles appealing to that fact of creation. A God, God, a true God is a creator. Therefore, we can't possibly be that. So don't do us worship. We're men just like you. That's comforting too, isn't it? That Barnabas and Paul could run into a group of Gentiles in what we now call Turkey and say, we're men of like passions with you. That's why we get comfort from James chapter 5 when it says that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Isn't that comforting, brethren? We've got Barnabas, Paul, and Elijah now with like passions as we are, and God used them mightily, and God dwelled in them and with them. Here is the difference. Herod would not give God the glory. God smote him down and killed him, and he was eaten of worms. Acts chapter 12. The popes of Rome consider themselves to be God and want to be worshipped like God, and here are apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They ran in and said, there's no difference between us and you. Worship God. Give him the glory. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. I want you to notice that in verse 17, it tells us something about the providence of God. Not only has God revealed himself by the creation, Romans chapter 1 and Psalm 19 tell us that we can go outside in the heavens, declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We can see the sun, moon, the stars, and we know there's a God. And we know he has eternal power and a Godhead. But there's more than that. Acts chapter 14 tells us that those fruitful seasons on a beautiful day, when the Lord fills your heart with gladness, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness, that is a testimony of the goodness and glory of God. Amen. 
And he does it even to pagans. He makes his sun to shine on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. A constant testimony that there is a glorious God. And you know when you've gone outside in a spring day and felt that sunshine kissing your face and the warmth, and you see the flowers and you smell the pollen in the air, and you have a fruitful season, those blessings that fill your soul are a testimony that God is good. And what do they do? They turn and worship gods named Jupiter and Mercurius. That is not responding to the truth of what lesson God gave them by his providence. That's rejecting it and rather worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Now, brethren, let me teach you something from Acts 14. These people, in one moment, are wanting to worship and do sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas as gods. When people react so frivolously, so impulsively, and so foolishly, there is no substance to their intentions. They're weak, and as Ephesians chapter 4 would say, they're tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. They have no stability. Because look what it is going to tell us in the very next verse. It's mind-blowing of how inconsistent, unstable, and fickle people are. Verse 19, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, we're in Lystra, remember, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Now one moment, they're trying to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. The next moment, they've killed Paul, and they're dragging him through the streets to leave him outside the city. How fickle human nature is. The natural man has no stability. Tossed to and fro, as I already said from Ephesians 4, with every wind of doctrine. Let us never be like that. Let us be firmly established in the truth. Not moving easily or quickly, but soberly considering any change that we would ever make in our doctrine. I do, and I hope that you'll pray for me that I always will. And I hope that you will always be slow to change. Look at these people. How ridiculous. They want to call them gods one minute, and the next minute they stone them and drag them through the streets and leave them outside the city. But God was with them. Amen. Now, when you can get stoned to death and drugged through the streets and laid, left outside the city and do what Paul does in the next verse, the Lord is with you. Amen. Nothing's too hard for the Lord, my brother says. Verse 20 how be it? He's laying there dead, supposing he had been dead. How be it as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. He went where? I love Paul. Amen. They've just stoned him and drug him out of the city of Lystra. And where did he go when he rose up? Back into the city of Lystra. That's a bold man. Can we be that bold? That's a bold man. I love that 20th verse. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. He even spent the night there. Brethren, they stoned Paul and drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. I think their suppositions were pretty accurate. They drug him through the streets like a dead man and left him out there, but the Lord revived him. Right. And he came back. Now there's speculation that it was at this time 
that he went to heaven and saw unspeakable things that we read about in Second Corinthians chapter 12. But I'm not a great Bible speculator, so I'm not going to be able to tickle your ears very far. Sorry. It's just what you got stuck with with the present pastor that you have. But that's what some believe. But see, it doesn't tell me that, so why should I entertain you with that? I just want to tell you that it's commonly believed that way, but it doesn't tell us that, so I don't believe it. I could accept it if the Lord would show me a verse that would connect the two passages, but I haven't found it yet. So he leaves the city of Lystra, and he takes Barnabas, and he goes to Derbe. Verse 21, And when he had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, and to Iconium, and Antioch. Now what we find at Derby is the end point of Paul's, this is Paul's first evangelistic trip. And the end point is Derby. He's gone through several cities, he comes to Derby, and then he begins to retrace his course by visiting the cities that he visited on the way out to Derby, and now on his way back, heading back to Antioch in Syria, his home church, he begins to revisit the cities, and it includes Lystra. That's where he was stoned to death. But he goes back and visits the believers that were in that city. We read about it in verse 21. And here's what he did as he retraced his steps and came back through these cities, confirming the souls of the disciples. When you confirm, that is with establishment. He established their faith. He established them in in the gospel. He had taught them maybe five weeks, maybe ten weeks, maybe six months. But he came back to confirm with establishment in the gospel. You know, they would have been tossed to and fro a little bit in his absence. But he came back and confirmed them in the truth. And that is a great part of gospel preaching, confirming the souls of the disciples that we be not moved around easily, that we be established in the truth. And that's why there is repetition. That's why I'm preaching right now in the mornings on why we preach the gospel, so that you'll understand the purpose of the gospel in light of our salvation, that you'll be confirmed in it. Not only that, it says that he exhorted them to continue in the faith. Why did it take a lot of exhortation for them to continue in the faith? There's two things we want to be confirmed That is to know exactly what the truth is. And second, to be exhorted to continue. Because it is so easy to get discouraged and think about quitting. And so here was exhortation from the Apostle Paul not to quit because the gospel life is a long-distance race. Amen. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12 that we want to lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us and run with patience, the race that is set before us. Now, if you're running a race with patience, it's not a sprint, and it's not a middle-distance run. It is a long-distance run that you run with patience, which means keep on running. Even when your body says stop, you keep on moving. That's Hebrews chapter 12. Because to enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, we're going to go through much tribulation. And we need to continue. And so the exhortation was on these saints, many of which he might never see again, continue. Don't become discouraged. Don't get tired. For in due season we shall all reap if we faint not. Right. Is what he teaches in another place. Exhorting them to continue in the faith. And here was his message, and it's not very comforting, that we through much tribulation must enter in 
to the kingdom of God. If you are living a godly life and seeking to enter into the kingdom of God at the end, at death or when Jesus Christ comes, there's much tribulation to go through. I don't have prosperity to preach to you like is in that book on the back table. What I have to preach to you is Acts chapter 14 and verse 22 that says we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. I want to tell you that in 2 Timothy 3.12 it says this, And all that shall live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It might be in your own family. It might be from fellow workers. It might be from former friends. It might be from neighbors. It might be from a church. If you're living a godly, holy life, there will be persecution because it's through much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of God. And therefore, part of the ministry is to exhort to continue. To continue. Are we all in this until the day of death? Amen. Amen. It's nothing short of that. Until Jesus comes and rescues us from this tribulation and persecution. Until then, we must continue. And I will do my best to exhort you to continue, but this is what the apostle did when he had a chance to visit churches. He wasn't giving them a slideshow of what happened in Iconium. Some of you have been to those many, many, many times in your life. What he did as he came back through these churches was to exhort them to continue. Verse 23, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. They ordained elders, plural, in every church, singular. Now that doesn't mean that a church needs more than one pastor. How do we prove that a church can get by with one pastor? And in fact, that's God's standard. By looking at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, when it says, And unto the angel of the church which is at Ephesus, write. Amen. That's it. What are these elders? Why did these churches get plural elders? Just think about the church at this time. What kind of offices did they have? Today we have two offices, bishops and deacons. What offices did they have then? Apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and pastors and teachers, and deacons. And so when we run upon the word elders in the plural in a church singular, you shouldn't be surprised at all. Look at Acts 13. Remember Acts 13, verse 1? Mm-hmm. Now there were, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. Would a prophet be called an elder? Mm-hmm. Well, we know that pastors and teachers are called elders. And therefore, if we argue from the lesser to the greater, since a prophet is a greater office than a pastor and teacher, they would have been called elders too. An apostle's called an elder because Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, I also am an elder. So apostles and prophets were elders. And so any man that had, remember, they didn't have a New Testament. Do you think Paul left them the New Testament? This is the book of Acts chapter 14. Hello? I mean that kindly. He did not leave them the New Testament. He left them prophets. And as an apostle, he would have been able to discern the gift of prophecy in a man and ordain them. And so in these churches, they had prophets, at least, maybe apostles. You say more apostles than 12? Uh Uh-huh. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, bishops, and deacons 
in these churches. So it doesn't surprise me a bit when I run upon the plurality of elders in these churches at this time. There wasn't a New Testament. By the time I get way over to Revelation 2 and 3, I find an angel at each one of those churches, and that was the pastor of those churches. Right. I'm still not a Presbyterian because of Acts chapter 14 and verse 23. Amen. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting. Remember that? That's how they got started in Acts chapter 13. They prayed with fasting for God's blessing upon those elders that they had ordained. They commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed throughout Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. These are regions like the Piedmont is in South Carolina. These are regions of what we now call Turkey, but what then was called Asia and Galatia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down into Italia and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. Remember, Acts 13, verse 1 began with several teachers and prophets in the church that was at Antioch in Syria, a great church of Gentiles of the book of Acts. From there, they had gone out to the island of Cyprus. They skipped Cyprus on the way back. It doesn't give us any record of them stopping at that island, but they sailed back to Antioch, and that's where you need to study because they didn't sail all the way to Antioch. They sailed to Seleucia, and then they went by land the rest of the way to Antioch. But that's all implied in the words, and you learn that from studying how they left the city of Antioch in the first place. So they came back to their home church, and when they were come, verse 27, and had gathered the church together. Here's an assembly that would have been exciting for Gentiles. Remember, they were the first Gentile church. Now they have sent out two ministers that the Holy Spirit said, I have a special work for them. They sent them out. They've come back. They get the whole church together and they rehearse all that God had done with them. This is the time for the slideshow and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. What a blessing. They got to tell the church at Antioch about Acts chapter 13, verse 46, when the apostles said, we turn to the Gentiles. And how the Gentiles, in mass, believed the gospel. Many of them, multitudes of the Gentiles had believed. And they could come back and say, we're no longer the only Gentile church. There are churches in Cyprus. There are churches in Pamphylia, in Pisidia. There's churches, brethren. And they rehearsed the whole matter. And so we have right here, this is the history that you ought to know. This is the history of God opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. And a light was shining in a very dark place. And those that sat in darkness had seen a great light. And that was the light of the gospel carried by Paul and Barnabas. And they told all that God had done and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. Brethren, these people were persecuted and suffered greatly. You saw the divisions. The Apostle Paul was stoned to death. We do not face such obstacles and opposition. Can we be faithful? Amen. In the last year, I've tried to confirm you, and I've tried to exhort you to continue. Can we continue this coming week? Amen. There's no fear of being stoned to death in our nation. Very little persecution. Very little suffering and very little tribulation. May God bless us to be faithful with such prosperity and peace and ease with which to believe the gospel and live holy lives 
without fear of pain, punishment, or imprisonment, we certainly ought to be the best saints that the churches of Christ have ever had. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.